Isaiah's clever uh, way to help kids understand uh, what happened in Easter and uh, the events leading up to it. And um, uh, what's interesting to me is, you know, I go down to Little Am uh, two times, usually two times a month, and there's uh, four different classes that I visit. So down there about eight times a month, and I share a story with them. And, and it's amazing to me how even the youngest of kids can get the concept and understand why Jesus did what he did and then he rose again from the grave. And uh, that's the story, my friends. That's what it's all about. That's what we're about here. Every one of us in this room are sinners. And that sin separated us from the living God. And we were absolutely without hope in the world. And there was nothing that we could do about it. We could not undo one of our sins. We cannot stop sinning. We can't pay for any of them. And so Jesus came, and he took our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And that's what Easter is all about. Not bunnies, not eggs, not candy, but God giving himself for us. Our scripture reading today comes from Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. And this is what we read there. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. The unfolding of God's word gives light. It brings understanding even to the simple. Would you pray with me now, please? Father, thank you for um, your love for us. And Lord, we understand from your word that uh, if it wasn't for your work in our life, uh, not one of us would have ever given you a thought. But you loved us. You loved us before we were born. You loved us before this world was created. And you knew that we would sin. And so you knew what you would do. You knew that you would send your son into this world to take our place on that cross that we might be with you forever. And we thank you that you have provided for us in every way. Every good and perfect gift we have has come from you. You just are a really wonderful and amazing God. And you have given us this treasure, your word. Uh, Lord, um, teaches us, it tells us things that we couldn't know otherwise. It helps us to see you and to see ourselves and see the world that we live in. And so as we come to your word today, we ask that you would open our minds and more than that, that you would open our hearts, that we would hear you speak to us, that we would recognize that voice and that we would embrace what you say. Help us, Lord, to put into practice what you teach us. And as for me, I pray that you would allow me to disappear behind that wonderful cross of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So uh, Anne and I were uh, just at the very beginning of our relationship, and uh, I moved to the West Coast, and uh, 
I went there remembering that first day that we met there in church and that smile that lit up the whole building so that they didn't have to turn the lights on there for a year and a day after that. And I went thinking that as I moved out there that it meant the end of our relationship, which was just beginning and which to me was so sweet. I really figured she'd come to her senses, but... uh, Somehow she didn't, for which I really am grateful. You know, she continued to answer my phone calls and letters, and she hadn't moved and changed her name. And I took that all as a pretty encouraging sign that maybe she was still interested in me. And so I kept calling and writing, and eventually I moved back, and we dated, and I asked her to marry me, and amazingly enough, and I still don't know why she said yes, I really do wonder if she doesn't wake up sometimes wondering what in the world she did wrong, how she went wrong, how she ever ended up with me. But I have to tell you, I'm really glad she did. But that time while we were living, or I was living on the West Coast, was really a good time for our relationship. I may have told you this story before, but while I was out there, we really got to know one another. And yes, uh, Through the phone calls, we got to know one another, and that really was the highlight of my week. I looked forward to it. But it was through the letters that we wrote that we really began to grow really close. And in them, we talked about everything, and we began to understand each other. And one of the things that we discussed was a book that I had read and recommended to her. And we went through it together in our long-distance relationship, chapter by chapter, sharing our thoughts and what we got out of it. And we both really liked the book. Uh, We thought it was uh, insightful. We thought it was helpful. And then we heard that the author, a pastor, and in fact had just recently, back then just recently, fallen into sexual immorality. We had finished the book by that time, and had finished our discussions, but neither of us uh, ever picked that book up again. It simply sat on our bookshelf. We never used it again, and we never recommended it to anyone. And we were disappointed and hurt by that, uh, especially so because we had put a certain amount of trust in this author and in his book. And what was really stunning to us is What he wrote about in the book was the importance of integrity and keeping a close walk with God. And yet he fell, a pastor, an author, a Christian. And although Satan may especially attack such people, he will destroy or try to destroy anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Just being a believer, you know, puts you in his sights. And sometimes Christians fall prey to him. Now the text that we're going to look at this morning uh, It knows that. It assumes that some who are a part of our church and and who at least claim to be a Christian will walk away from the faith. Our author, uh, James, makes some observations about that, which I think we're going to find helpful. 
James doesn't uh, say everything that there is to say about this subject. He really does assume that his readers, and that includes us, share a common knowledge about these things, and we do. We really do share that common knowledge because we have God's Word. And although James doesn't go into uh, great detail about this topic, what he does here in the very closing remarks of his letter uh, can, can be helpful to us when we face such things, when we face people who have walked away, who have turned away from the faith. And so, I, again, I uh, invite you to join me with uh, once again in the book of James, uh, chapter 5, where we're going to be looking at the last two verses in the Scriptures, James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. So here we are, really at the very end of James' letter, and in it he's talked to us about how we should live. He's talked to us about uh, uh, how our faith matters and how it should affect the things that we do in life. He has warned us of dangers that we faced. He's encouraged us to choose and do what's right. And in these closing thoughts here that we're about to look at, uh, he talks to us about those who fail, about those who turn away from God and walk away from him. And what he does is he points us in our response to the right direction. So let's see what he has to say uh, to us here today. And James begins really by acknowledging that some uh, who we know really should know better are going to turn away from the faith. And we can see that in the very beginning of verse 19. And we read there, my brothers and sisters, if any one of you should wander from the truth. I have to tell you that that if there is not merely conjectural. It's not mere musing on the part of James. It indicates not just the possibility but the probability of people wandering away from the faith. And it could actually be translated there, my brothers and sisters, when one of you wanders away from the faith. It's the same kind of if that an instructor at the police academy uses when he says to his class, if you're dispatched to an accident. See, the instructor, the instructor and the cadet, they, they don't have any doubt that that's going to happen. They know it will. They just don't know when. And the same thing is true with this passage. People are going to walk away from the faith, not with the same frequency as accidents, thank God. It's really a relatively rare occurrence, but it will and it does happen uh, where someone from our church or other churches will walk away from the faith. And that's really what's happening here. See, that person is walking away from the faith. Another way to say it is that he or she is walking away from God. Now, of course, all of us here sin. Every one of us here do. We sin over and over again, all sorts of sins every single day. But we know it, and we sin, we confess it, we turn from it, we repent, we try to do better. And, of course, we may fail over and over again, but we keep right on trying. But this is a person who has stopped trying. This is a person who has decided 
to turn and walk down this path that leads away from God. And to us, it might kind of look like they just sort of strayed away, like they weren't really paying attention, like they were on a bus tour somewhere and they weren't paying attention and they kind of got separated from the rest of the group and got lost. But it's really much more serious than that. You see, the Greek verb here indicates that they were led astray. And James doesn't tell us by who, but we know, don't we? You and I, we know enough about Christianity to know the three great enemies, the world, the faith, and the devil. And it's the world or the faith, the devil, that is leading these people astray. But they are complicit in it. You see, they are the ones who are turning from the truth. So as believers, we walk in the way. We follow the truth. Christ is our leader. And the scriptures talk about the highway of righteousness, and we're put on that highway by God himself. And when we wander away, we know that we're walking away from the truth. Now, some people are not going to deny their doctrine, but their lifestyle uh, opposes everything that the faith stands for. And the results of that turning away, that that walking away from God and the truth, which we really can deduce from the next verse, the consequences of that, the results of that are death and a multitude of sin. So when someone turns from the way, they're, they're on a road that leads to death, and the way is littered with sin and brokenness. And you know what the question is that always arises at this point? Every time that something like this happens, we ask this question. We say, was he or she really a Christian? Were they really believers or were they just pretending all the time that we knew them? We wonder that because they're... Their behavior is so contrary that everything that Christ stands for, and we are simply often just dumbfounded when that happens. We, we, We don't see it coming, and we can hardly believe it. And it hurts us when it happens because we feel betrayed by that person. Now, we're going to put off addressing that. Uh, uh, that question just yet, that question about whether the person really is a believer or not, but it really is what goes on in our minds whenever someone who has claimed to be a Christian, who has been with us in our church, and who has walked away, that's what we wonder. For now, we're going to look at uh, the direction in which James points us when that happens. And uh, he, he tells us what we ought to do when somebody does that, when they do, uh, to turn away from the faith. And what he tells us to do is that we need to try to bring them back to God, bring them back to his way. And so verse 19, again, we read, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back. See, the someone wanders away from the truth and then someone else needs to try to bring them back. And we're going to talk about how to do that in a moment. But first, let's just talk about who. Who is it that is supposed to bring back the one who's wandering from the truth? Well, the NIV here says someone, but the Greek is just a little bit more specific. It says anyone 
among you. Anyone in the church, anyone who was part of that congregation where this person worshipped anyone. See, that responsibility uh, can fall to anyone there and, and, uh, and the responsibility to bring that person, that brother or sister back, it, 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 ha- it falls to pastors and elders, but it's not limited to us. Any one of us might find ourselves in that situation where we need to try to bring someone back. And that really brings us now to the how. How are we to go about bringing the wanderer back to the fold? And here's a place where James is relying on our knowledge of the Scripture. See, he's simply pointing us to what we're supposed to do. He doesn't tell us what that is. It's Jesus who tells us how to do that in Matthew chapter 18. And I want to summarize that portion of Scripture for you. And so it begins this way. It begins when you or I are aware of someone's sin. And that sin may be against us specifically or not. But once you're aware of it, um, you may indeed have an obligation to go and to try and help that person come back to the truth. Now, the way that you know if you have that obligation or not is if you have what we have here in uh, our time together talked about if you have a a hearing or not. And so Christ really isn't interested in creating a group of busybodies. He doesn't expect every single person in the truth, uh, uh, in the church, to go talk to this person when they find them wandering away. So what we're talking about here in Matthew 18 right now, it's it's not found in James, it's not found in Matthew 18, it comes from our general understanding our general knowledge of the scripture and the wisdom that comes from God's word that we have a responsibility if we have a hearing of that person. If you have a hearing of that person, you have an obligation to speak to them. So you have that right to speak or that hearing if the sin was against you. Or you have that obligation and right to speak to that person if that person is a close friend of yours. Or if that person is a member of your family, and the closer the relationship, the more right you have to speak. So a mother and father have more right to speak to a child than that person's brother or sister who has more right even than a cousin. And then there are pastors and elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and Bible Bible study leaders who have that right to speak, that hearing, because of their position. And you might also have that right to speak to someone if you've been down that path yourself. And any, if any of that fits, then you have an obligation to go and talk to that person. Now, if you think about that, you can see how any number of people might go to that person and be talking to them at the same time. Although they don't go together, they go individually. And some people are aware that someone else is going to talk, and they might, as they think about it and pray about it, deem that it's not best for them to go. They don't want to feel like they're uh, piling on. But when someone wanders away, if you have that hearing, then you have an obligation to talk to them. Now, the next thing that happens occurs when uh, the wanderer doesn't listen uh, to those who have talked with him. They, they continue walking down that right path. And so 
Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 that then we have to have two or three people go together. And so they go and they try to reason with that person and, and maybe, they, uh, maybe they're all people who have already been there and they're all people that ought to have a hearing with them and they're trying to establish the truth and they're trying to help one another understand. And the whole purpose is to try to turn that person around. And sometimes it works. And sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't work, then the church is brought into the equation. And here at Y Bible Church, the pastors and the elders act on behalf of the church. And so if that person repents, well and good. And if not, then we take that final step. We put them out of the church. We treat them by Jesus' own instruction like a pagan. Now, I have to tell you that none of this is supposed to be done perfunctorially as though we're just checking off a list, as though we're just trying to the, get to the end of the process and, and just be done with the whole thing. See, every step leading up to that final break, every step can happen over and over again many times and it can continue to happen and ought to happen as long as there's hope at any one of those steps that that person is going to turn and is going to return to God and when it doesn't then it goes to the next step and that ought to occur until it's clear that no change is going to be made all the way up to the point where pastors and elders are trying to talk with that person and turn them back to the faith. And all through that process, we're praying. And so Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 what the goal of that process is. It's to bring our brothers and sisters back. James puts it this way in verses 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should uh, wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That's our goal, you see. Our goal is to save them from death. Our goal is to cover over all of the sin, not as though we're hiding it, by helping them to confess it and turn from it so that the blood of Christ can cover it. Our goal is to win our brothers and sisters back to Christ. Now, of course, they can short-circuit that process anywhere. They can simply say, I'm not going to talk to you. None of that lets us off the hook. We have to continue with that process, even if it means the only step we can take is the final step where we put them out of the church. Now, I have to tell you that sometimes the church is criticized because it reaches that last step. And it seems to people looking from the outside that nothing more is being done. But what are we supposed to do? Uh, one does not go on threshing wheat forever, as the Bible says, or plowing the ground unceasingly, or maybe we can put it in more modern terms. You don't toss salad forever. And at some point, you stop stirring the iced tea because there's going to be sugar left at the bottom of the glass. We shouldn't cast our pearls before swine or give 
what's holy to dogs. It's profane to do that. So to continue pursuing someone after that final step that Jesus instructs us, it's not only a waste of time and effort, it's also an occasion for shame. And and it is also an act of disobedience. You see, we are told by Christ what we're supposed to do, and we are bound by that. And when we reach that last step, then we have to treat that person as a pagan. And now I think we're going to try to address that question that we put off a little while ago, and whether that person that is acting that way, who has walked away from God and God's truth and who is not responding to people and is not responding even in church can really be a Christian. You know, Christ tells us if we get to the end of that process, we're to treat that person as though they are lost. And we're to do that because some of them really Some of them really never were believers to start with. Everything with them was a pretense. And now it comes out in their actions just as it did with Judas. But others may be believers who are just far from God. And you and I cannot tell which is which. And so we deal with them as though they're lost. And I have to tell you, I would never talk with someone in that situation and give them any assurance whatsoever that they were going to go to heaven when they die. How could I? What evidence is there of it? You know, a profession or a prayer in the past is just that. I can't know if it was genuine or not, and neither can that person. You know, a person in that situation ought to be terrified that they really are not a Christian because they may not be. And we ought to fear for someone who justifies their sin by claiming to be saved, saying, well, I know I shouldn't do it, but I'm going to go to heaven anyway, and so I'm going to do it. So I can tell you that if such a person really is a believer or not, I don't know. I don't know how to tell that. The only evidence we can look at at the moment then this day when they do it says, no, they aren't. And all that past evidence can do is say, maybe, maybe that person is a Christian. And so we're to treat them as if they're lost. But if we do that, if we do that and we turn them, then verse 20 tells them, tells us that remember Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So if we turn someone like that, then we save them from death, eternal death if that person was an unbeliever, or physical death and the quenching of the spirit and the lack of God's work in their life if the person was a believer. And in either case, we save them from death. And if we turn them, then we cover over a multitude of sins. The unbeliever is finally set free. And the believer is really restored and is like new. But if worse comes to worse, then we treat them as though they're lost. So how do we do that? Just how do we treat the lost? Well, we desire 
their reconciliation with God, don't we? I mean, at least we ought to in our heart. And I have to tell you something. I know it's an awful lot easier to desire that about someone who's never been part of a church or part of our community than it is someone who has been and has turned their back on God because we've been hurt deeply when that happens. But we really ought to desire their reconciliation. And what else do we do with the lost? Well, we tell them the truth, don't we? But we never try to force it on them. We, we've learned. We understand. We've had enough experience to know when we try to force it, it does no good at all. It only drives them away. And so we give them their space. And we do even what Jesus himself does. We let them walk away if that's what they're determined to do. That's how we treat the lost. That's how we treat a brother or sister who doesn't repent when they've walked away from the truth. I have to tell you, there's one other thing that we do. And and it's the thing that we are to continue doing after we've taken that last step. It's the thing that we should have been doing through that whole process right from the beginning, right from the very moment that we first realized that that person had turned away from the faith. It's the most powerful thing that we can do. And, and while a person might refuse to listen to us, they, they can't stop us from still working on their behalf. You see, we can pray, and we continue to pray because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. I have to tell you something. I think, I really think that sometimes people must get tired of hearing pastors say just how important prayer is. But we are in a spiritual battle, and our weapons are not of this world. They're spiritual. They're powerful. They're effective. And we do battle on our knees. We make the greatest difference when we go to God with those things that are on our heart. Uh, we uh, make the greatest difference when we're praying. And so we pray and we ask and we seek and we knock. And the reason we pray is because when we ask, we're answered. And when we seek, we find. And when we knock, the door is open. And the prayer of a righteous person, and that's simply someone who knows Christ and is trying to walk with them. Prayer of a righteous person can save a soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, you know that pastor I told you about uh, at the very beginning that wrote that book? You know, he did repent. Um, He came back to God, and he's serving him today. I have to tell you, it took me a long time. It took me over 20 years to accept that truth. I was suspicious of him. I was unsure. I have to tell you, I didn't know him. I never interacted with him personally, so that was probably part of it. But that that hurt that I felt is real. That betrayal is real. But I I do believe. I I finally arrived at a point. I finally got to a place where where I accepted he really has turned and God is using him again. That he was saved from death and multitude of sins is covered his situation isn't the same things have changed for him since but he is walking with God once again and 
And as I said, I, I didn't know that, Pastor. Now, there is a man that you and I know that has walked away from God in the faith. And we know that he is walking towards death and that he is on a path littered with sin. And we went through that Matthew 18 process with him. And now we look at him as though he's lost. Maybe he is. Maybe he never was a believer. Now, it took a while for me to get there. I have to admit it to you. It took me a while for me to get there. Maybe maybe you are still on your journey there, and I accept that. I accept that you could be on that journey there. But I have to tell you that I pray for our previous youth pastor. Every day, I pray for Jason. Well, at least I try. I fail sometimes, like everybody else. But God has brought me to a place where I can pray for him. I can't do anything else, but I can do that. And I know that's what's most important. And so as we know Christ and as we walk with him, we are righteous as he is. And our prayers are powerful and effective and can save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And that is, after all, my friends, our story. It's exactly what God did for us. And I think that's a mighty fine thought to end our study of James with. We have a gracious and good and forgiving God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we just ask for your grace and mercy to us and that you would help us whenever we find ourselves in such situations that we would trust you, that we would obey you, that we would follow your direction and your instruction, and that you would help us, Lord, to follow you by praying and seeking the good of others, knowing that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.